The West African nation of Mali has been in the media recently for all the wrong reasons. An ongoing jihadist insurgency created political insecurity, which led to a military coup, and more recently, the cutting of ties with the former colonial power France, as the de facto government rely on the support of the controversial Russian mercenary operation, the Wagner Group, better known for atrocities committed in Ukraine and the ill-fated march on Moscow, but whose methods have also caused much bloodshed throughout Africa. But with accusations and counter-accusations of colonialism, exploitation and human rights abuses being bounced around between the French and the Wagner Group, what's often overlooked in the West is that once upon a time, the wealthiest ruler in history, Mansa Musa, as well as three of the greatest powers in African history, the Mali, Songhai and Hamdullahi empires, existed in Mali. In addition to the threat posed to civilians by the current conflict, the carefully preserved texts detailing this extraordinary history, typically maintained in tiny libraries around the country, are also at threat from looting or the threat of becoming collateral damage in the violent carnage. Scholars such as Naples native Professor Maron Nabili continue to uncover facts about the political and Islamic history of this part of the world, and his work in recent years has extended from just studying the raw facts to examining the famous historical chronicles, artifacts which have become historic relics in their own rights. The so-called Timbuktu Chronicles, which includes two books, the Tarak al-Fatash and Tarak al-Sudan, detail what we would now call Malian history going back to the 15th century at the height of the Songhai Empire. In 1913, two Frenchmen, Octave Houdas and Maurice de la Fosse, seemingly recovered a complete manuscript of the former. But was it genuine and undoctored? Regardless, it made its way into the public domain, as Professor Nobili explains. Definitely the edition by Udas and de la Fosse in 1913 uh, provided uh, basically a broader public with a companion to the Tariqa Sudan who had been already known uh, you know, since the very end of the uh, 19th century. But the interesting thing is that, in fact, uh, the publication by Udas and de la Fosse was already a big achievement because uh, especially French colonial administrators have been looking for this chronicle since a journalist, you know, Félix Dubois, visited Tombouctou uh, immediately after the French conquered, you know, the French conquest of the city. So uh, Dubois heard about the chronicle, but he couldn't find it. You know, that says his famous statement, uh, the Tariq al-Fatash is the phantom book of the Sudan. But that eventually it was not phantom anymore because they found copies uh, that uh, Udas and de la Fosse identified as different manuscripts of the same chronicle. And that's where the kind of the issue starts, uh, because as you say, they presented this chronicle uh, as a quasi-coherent uh, text uh, that had gone through some kind of manipulation, meaning that the theory advanced by Udas and de la Fosse is that uh, an author uh, already in the 1500s uh, named Mahmoud Kati started the chronicle, then uh, he produced basically a finalized piece that was eventually slightly updated by one of his grandsons, who's also only known as the son of Al-Muhtar. We don't really know his full name. But then eventually, 
already by the time uh, Udas and De La Fosse identified that there were some inconsistencies in the text uh, that clearly pointed out some kind of 19th century manipulation of the text itself. So they opened the door for some kind of more complex uh, understanding of the chronicle. Uh, but I think historians have been fixated uh, in uh, maintaining uh, the integrity of the chronicle because it served the purpose of having a reliable uh, source. But in fact, it was not really the case. There's an old cliche which probably contains a lot of truth that history is written by the victors. I've read some of your work elsewhere in which you suggest that colonial era historians didn't apply the same level of skepticism to African historical texts as they did to European documents. Because at that time, they didn't seem to comprehend that African historians and chroniclers would have the same level of sophistication as their European counterparts. Yeah, I would say that the um, alleged lack of sophistication uh, has led people in reading, generally speaking, the you know sources from West Africa as if they were more naive than in fact they are. And this is not you know my specific contribution. In fact, already Birmingham-based uh, Brazilian scholars, Paulo de Moraes Farias, uh, has advanced you know in multiple pieces uh, his theory about uh, a way more sophisticated approach to this kind of scholarly production by local intellectuals in history. So it's not just about the chronicles of Tombouctou, it's also about oral traditions. So moving away from the idea that these are, were kind of repositories of hard facts, but these were in fact uh, a fully-fledged intellectual uh, you know, projects. So I describe myself uh, in that particular uh, new approach, and uh, I kind of apply that uh, to the Tariq al-Fatash, which I think is the one that most fully demonstrates uh, this kind of agenda-driven uh, uh, nature of most of these of these sources. Yeah. I have a background in Christian theology, so it's not lost on me that if you read the Gospel of Matthew, which most scholars believe was written by somebody Jewish, as opposed to, say, the Gospel of Luke, which most scholars believe was written by a Gentile, that the events as recorded in Matthew are represented in a way that it appears Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. And we know, of course, the Gospels were written far more recently than the Old Testament. But in a kind of reverse of that scenario, you have proposed that the Tarakal Fatash, as we know it, despite seemingly being older, was written in a way that justifies the reign of Ahmad Lobu, ruler of the Hamdalahi Empire which arose years after the events recorded in that chronicle. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's say that uh, my theory is premised on the idea that what we know as Tariq al-Fatash, so the edition of 1913, uh, is in fact a conflation of two texts. So what we can call properly Tariq al-Fatash is a 19th century chronicle. But this chronicle was not written from scratch. It was written by extensively modifying an earlier chronicle that dates to the 1600s. So while the original chronicle, the older one, is indeed a chronicle of the Songhai Empire, but also the fall of the Songhai Empire, the 19th century Tariq al-Fatash, which is the only one who actually has the, the, the title Tariq al-Fatash, the previous one doesn't use at all the words Fatash in the entire text, 
So the 19th century Tariq al-Putash is absolutely a chronicle that is meant to impact on the political and religious landscape of central Mali in the 19th century when, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the scholar that you mentioned, Ahmed Lobo, establishes the caliphate of Hamdallahi, centered basically in the, in the city that was named Hamdallahi. That's why we call it the caliph of Hamdallahi. And uh, the uh, chronicle serves uh, the purpose of presenting a prophecy that is fulfilled uh, by the arrival of Ahmed Lobo as a legitimate West African ruler, uh, as the culmination of a long tradition of West African legitimate Muslim rulers. But there's also something more uh, that I haven't really explored in my book, Sultan Caliph and the Renewer of the Faith, uh, that focuses more on the political aspect of the chronicle. But what is interesting is that the Tariq al-Fatash has also an obsession in issues connected to slavery, to race, to the status of certain endogamous groups of like, you know, leather workers, fishermen, etc. Because one of the major achievements, I would say, of the Caliphate of Hamdallah was a substantial restructuring of the social landscape of the Middle Niger. So we need to understand that the ruling elite of Hamdallah, they were nomads. They were nomads, uh, herdsmen and nomads who were not actually traditionally state builders and dependent, in fact, on agriculturalists, uh, dependent on fishermen. Uh, and actually, as nomads uh, and herdsmen often had very tense relationships with uh, settled people, uh, and, you know, the, the context of contemporary central Maria, where this kind of ethnic tension uh, is actually now exasperated, uh, is telling us of how difficult could be this relationship. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is that Hamdallah also attempted to regulate and substantially transform uh, the relationship between this different group on the ground. And the Tariq al-Fatash, in fact, is one of the tools uh, that uh, attempted at least to justify this social transformation uh, by making them look uh, traditional, by providing precedence uh, to what, in fact, was a substantial social innovation taking place on the ground. And I'm exploring this uh, now uh, a little bit more in detail uh, because I'm finalizing eventually the edition and translation in English of both texts. So the older one that I call the Chronicle of Ibn al-Muhtar, that's the only way we can actually refer to this chronicle, and the Tariq al-Fatash itself. So I'm trying also now to do a little bit more of uh, social history, and especially to understand his claims about social transformation in the chronicle, yeah. Picking up on the suggestion that the Tariq al-Fatash, as widely published, was based on two distinct documents, have any other versions of either of these two distinct texts been discovered elsewhere in either a complete or fragmentary form? And that's another very interesting point because uh, there is one text, one actual manuscript that Houdassin de la Fosse in France received just while they were publishing the, you know, their edition, their messy edition of the Chronicle. Uh, that is a crucial document. It is, in fact, uh, an incomplete version uh, of the older chronicle, uh, the, seven, uh, the 17th century chronicle, uh, that um, does not bear, of course, the name of the alleged author, no, name, no reference to the title, because all of these things are 19th century you know, modifications. The problem is that at that point, uh, uh, Udassin de la Fosse had been already, in a way, fooled by the forgery of the 19th century. So they... Uh, full confidence that the text that they produced 
was a legitimate text. So while they understood the importance of this, uh, this other manuscript that they found, and they indeed translated into French and put it as an appendix to their edition, the problem is that they did not understand the complexity of the relationship between all the manuscripts that they had. So they were convinced that what they had was good enough. So they did not actually incorporate this into their edition of the text. The problem also is that this manuscript is lost. Last time I could actually trace references to this in 1916, when Delafosse writes something in Dakar, listing the manuscripts that you know he was using, and he makes reference to this one. But then we don't have this manuscript anymore. And trust me, in the past 15 years, uh, I looked everywhere trying to find this manuscript, but it must might have been destroyed during World War II. There is a biography of De La Fosse. Uh, there is reference to the fact that during World War uh, II, some of the, uh, you know, the archive of De La Fosse uh, got destroyed and looted. So most likely we'll never have this, you know, the actual manuscript anymore. So that's one thing. So one crucial document was in fact in the hands of the people uh, who could have actually made the story straight from the very beginning, but they didn't. What happens is that um, we always think kind of linearly that uh, a text moves from its manuscript format into the print edition. But in fact, in West Africa, this is not the case, uh, when a lot of people copy back into manuscripts uh, edited texts. So, for instance, we know very well that we have like Arabic letters in which we have references to the fact that uh, after the publication of the Tarikh al-Fatash in Paris, uh, copies were sent back in Timbuktu. So these copies, these print copies, were eventually copied down uh, back into manuscript format. So mm-hmm. in many collections uh, in Mali, you have actually copies of what is called the Tarikh al-Fatash, but it's in fact the copies of the edition of the text. So it, it's a very interesting story of, you know, almost I, I called it once uh, sort of like textual metempsychosis of this text that moves from, you know, the manuscripts into the edition and back into manuscript. And it's interesting because you can find it right away, because in my opinion, Udassin de la Fosse made a mistake in interpreting uh, the, um, the last lines of the text. So by just looking at the last line of the text, I can tell you if this is copied from the edition or if it's a pre-edition uh, manuscripts uh, of the Chronicle, yeah. To your point about the originals being copied numerous times, again, it makes me think of the Gospels, which were originally spread orally for at least a generation before being recorded in written form. And then as we saw, we have multiple variants. Were the people in Mali making these copies concerned with integrity, taking into account nuances of certain words and so forth, even if there wasn't a particular political or religious angle they were trying to push, just in terms of, if you will, professional integrity, was there a concern to ensure everything was relayed accurately? Or was it more lackadaisical with paraphrasing, opening up the possibility of misinterpretation or misunderstanding? Do we know much about their methods and their mindset? No, I would say that... um... In the case of these texts that are copied from, uh, you know, the uh, the print edition, and I'm starting from the Fatash, then I'll make a broader comment. Uh, uh, we are already in a context with this idea of preserving uh, the integrity of the text, which is a very modern, as you're mentioning, idea, had already basically taken root in Mali. So these copies of the Fatash can be maybe, you know, full of mistakes because maybe the copies were not, uh, you know, exquisite uh, intellectuals, you know, them introducing mistakes. 
but there is quite a strong, uh, you know, consistency in copying the text in quotes and quotes properly. It is interesting, for instance, that uh, uh, even the appendices of the text are uh, reproduced. So sometimes you have some of the copies who are so accurate that also uh, introduces, you know, the, uh, the appendix to the text. Sometimes, uh, like in very beautiful formats, like around the end of the text. So they sometimes are very beautifully uh, made pieces. Of course, this was not the case before. In the only comparison that I can uh, give you in the case uh, of the older text, so not really the Fatash, but the one on which the Fatash is based, um, you know, of, of course, it's, I mean, I'm pretty confident that my theory that uh, these two manuscripts are representing, you know, the same text. Uh, but uh, so if I am correct that there are two manuscripts, the one uh, that was lost and that we only have in French translation and the one that I have and the one that I based my edition on uh, do show discrepancies. Discrepancies sometimes can be substantial. Substantial by, by substantial, I mean... Uh, there's some, some sections that are shortened, some sections that are a little bit more expanded. Um, so this is not just about the quality of the copyist. It's for specific choices of the copies, because as you describe, copying something almost as a photocopy machine is a very modern idea. Copies have always been actually very active. And there is um, uh, one manuscript, a copy of a manuscript from... Uh, uh, an early 20th century scholar from Timbuktu is actually a Moroccan trader who ends up living in Timbuktu. His name was Ahmed Bularaf, and is a topic of research of my former mentor at the University of Cape Town, Shamil Jeppi. He always tells this anecdote, which I find beautiful. There is a note in this manuscript, which is a copy of an earlier text. And the copy says, uh, my copy is better than the original copy. Which is quite telling about the attitude of this kind of coffee. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. So before the Frenchman found these copies, it was thought that after the fall of Hamdallahi, that all of the historic texts had been destroyed. Was that kind of erasure of history, which obviously evokes memories of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia or the Nazis at Nuremberg? Was that something commonplace in Mali? where a new regime takes over and tries to completely erase the history and tradition that has gone before? In the case of, you know, of, of Mali, I'm not really sure. I don't, I don't really have like any evidence to answer like 100% to your question. I mean, there is a local tradition that say, for instance, that, uh, you know, when, as you mentioned, uh, Fulani from uh, uh, northern Senegal, uh, you know, leader uh, Elaji Omar arrives in Amdalai, takes over the city, and part of the library is destroyed. So this is what people know. But in fact, we also know because his own library is eventually taken by the French, where his, you know, his descendants are conquered by the French. And we do have uh, in the library collection of Elijah Omar, a lot of materials from Hamdallah. So I would imagine, in fact, uh, more than the pre-existing pre uh, collection might have been incorporated uh, in the one of the conqueror more than burned. But there is actually references to destroying, uh, of an, let's say, an earlier kind of tradition of writing from northern Nigeria. Uh, there is this anecdote connected to the um, Sokoto, the emergence of the Sokoto Caliph, is kind of a neighboring and uh, contemporary, contemporary state uh, to Hamdallahi, just slightly, slightly earlier, like a decade early, it emerges in northern Nigeria. There is this references to the destruction of the books uh, 
of a town that I think is called Yandoto in, uh, you know, in the Hausaland in northern Nigeria as a consequence uh, of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the war between, uh, you know, the old elite uh, and the newly emerging uh, elite of Sokoto. So uh, it's very plausible that destruction of this kind happened, but at the same time, going back to underlie, my, you know, I suspect more that uh, we have, if not the entirety, but a, a large part of the collection of underlie that end up being incorporated in the, uh, in the one oil agio. Although, of course, you know, this is war is happening, things get burned, things get destroyed, which I think is quite similar, in fact, to what happened in 2013 uh, when the French uh, reconquered uh, from the ends of so called jihadist uh, mm-hmm. Tombouctou. I mean, there's this story of the three, four thousand manuscripts that per- were burnt, uh, which is still a, you know, a story that doesn't really add up to me that much. Before the Songhai Empire, we obviously had the Mali Empire. And I've read reports suggesting that history from that period was passed on orally. Is there any evidence that we perhaps once had written documentation from the time of people like Mansa Musa? Or was it just literally something that one generation passed on verbally to the next? In, you know, it's kind of, again, it's another complicated question because... Um, I don't really think that there is extensive, there, there was extensive recording uh, of history, like in the shape of the chronicles uh, in earlier times, uh, uh, for the simple reason that we don't really see in this, in the earlier chronicle that we have, Tarikh uh, Sudan and the chronicle of Ibn al-Muhtar, uh, we don't really have citations from pre-existing historical materials. Sometimes there is references to notes, uh, you know, in um, in Arabic, uh, the term that is used for note is kitab, which also means books. But it's basically everything that is written. But I don't think that a tradition of writing down chronicles existed, because even if they had disappeared, we might have known of this kind of chronicles. But what is interesting is that uh, the chroniclers often refer to people as, you know, um, I'm thinking of a specific uh, scholar, his name was Kuma. He says he's, a, he's an expert uh, of the history of the ancient times. So I do think that there were traditionalists, kind of like we have nowadays, you know, the griot and things like that, but even most likely people were just very familiar with events of the past, maybe also relying on written materials that are lost today. Because indeed, it is true that the earlier kind of substantial historical writing dates to the, uh, that we have dates to the 1600s. In fact, we do have evidences uh, of uh, writing in different domains, so not in history, but, you know, in Islamic law, etc., that at least dates back uh, to the uh, 1400s. And also, we do know through inscriptions on stone that people were writing, in fact, already in the 1100s. But again, I'm skeptical about uh, thinking of the 1600s uh, chronicles of Tumbuktu as inheritor of a longer tradition of chronicle writing. I think this is, again, one of the points that Paolo de Moraes Farias makes. The chronicle a response to a particular historical time. So they are a form of writing, a genre that emerges in response to very specific, uh, you know, basically mid-17th century uh, historical context. So as we both know, sadly today, Mali is a nation gripped by political instability, jihadist violence, paramilitary groups, and so on. But what role, if any, does this history, the Tarek al-Fatash, 
and other documentation have in contemporary terms. In the country, I mean, is there a desire to explore and to publicize the past or because of current views on politics and Islam and conceptions of African history, is this something that is seen as somehow controversial? Well, I would say that generally speaking, um, individual texts um, are not in my experience ever kind of uh, brought up uh, as a specific kind of national identity uh, tools, okay? Like, for instance, in the case of oral traditions, you know, this tradition of Sunjata Keita is in a way, uh, a, you know, a national tradition. This is not really the case with the chronicles per se, but the manuscript heritage as a whole, it's used in this sense, but not specifically the text. Also, the problem, I think, is that uh, most of these general narratives about Mali are led by, you know, francophone or let's say Western trained intellectuals who are not really the one uh, who tend to uh, be at home with the manuscript tradition. So the manuscript tradition, although it's, it is evoked most many times uh, in, you know, as a national heritage, etc., they are not really, really used to build this kind of national uh, narrative beyond this idea that they might provide solutions for, uh, you know, for conflicts, uh, because many of these manuscripts in are in fact about uh, settling disputes, you know, materials about Islamic law, uh, fatwas, etc. At the same time, uh, there is, of course, uh, uh, a rather conservative, in a way, approach uh, among the scholars from Mali with uh, these chronicles, uh, with the kind of the established uh, version of these chronicles, uh, which are used uh, extensively. Because, of course, uh, Mali tends to be cut off uh, from development in scholarship. Because, of course, uh, of the fact that English is now the dominant in, you know, language of scholarship uh, because of lack of access uh, to new publications. Uh, so I wouldn't see this as, a, again, uh, as a shortcoming uh, of Malian scholars, uh, but as a kind of an effect uh, of a very problematic uh, uh, kind of uh, attitude of scholars uh, sitting in the West or in the North, whatever you want to call it, uh, in not sharing, in fact, uh, um, you know, the most updated research. That's why, for instance, uh, uh, you know, I published my uh, recent book with Cambridge, but in fact, I'm particularly uh, proud of the fact that uh, I, I had a Malian translating my book into French uh, and publishing it in, uh, you know, in Mali. And, you know, I, I would be very happy to have like Malian scholars, you know, who are way more familiar with the manuscript tradition now reading the book and coming back and maybe highlighting uh, some of the weak parts of my, uh, of my own research. Uh, and one of the goals that I have with uh, my co-authors, so I'm, I'm doing the translation and the edition with uh, a Malian Burkina Bay colleague, Ali Jakite, from the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library here in Minnesota, and Zachary Wright from Northwestern in Qatar. So one of the uh, goals that, especially with Ali Jakite, we have is eventually to produce a 100% Arabic edition, uh, commented edition of the text that can go back in Mali. Because I think this is the only way in which we can actually bring uh, Malian voices uh, extensively in the uh, in the research.